Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 68, The Second English Civil War Part 3, The War of the Engagement. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. First, thank you to my patrons whose support helps keep the podcast going. The House of Lords has been joined by Lacra Miyawara Cockadell of the Earldom of Dunblane, Deborah Baroness Walson, and Preston P has been promoted. Like all other patrons, they can now listen to this and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. Over the last three episodes the Coalition of Chaos episode and the first two parts of the Second English Civil War, we've covered how the various forces which made up the Royalist Coalition in England have been fighting the Second English Civil War. This coalition was a mixed bag. Former Royalists from the First Civil War who still fight for the King. Moderate parliamentarians who think the political and religious revolution has gone too far. Political and religious Presbyterians, who hate and fear the anarchic ideals of the independence and their religious toleration. Former parliamentarian soldiers and sailors, who have defected to the king for grand ideals, as well as those who just want to get their wages paid. And ordinary people, who are sick and tired of famine, disease, high taxes, high prices, the standing army, the puritanical decrees of parliament which have banned their festivals and holidays, and who are above all else, desperate for a return to normality. All across England and Wales, these resentments and grievances boiled over. Sometimes into petitions, sometimes into riots, sometimes into outright rebellion. The new model army of Sir Thomas Fairfax and Oliver Cromwell has spent most of the spring and summer of 1648 moving from crisis to crisis, restoring order, putting down rebellions, constantly, with one eye on the northern border. Because central to the hopes of all these royalists, those who were aware of the larger picture, that is, were the Scots. The engagement between King Charles and the Duke of Hamilton's faction in the Scottish Parliament was the keystone of the King's hopes. Ireland was too, of course, but as we also saw last week, 
the rapprochement between Irish royalists and the Irish Confederacy had led to outright civil war within the Confederacy, so no help was coming from that kingdom. No, it was Scotland, the king's birthplace, the native land of the Stuart dynasty, that would be Charles's deliverance. Or so he hoped. When we left off in the last episode, it was on something of a cliffhanger. Cromwell had finally captured Pembroke Castle in Wales, one of the greatest strongholds on the island of Britain. The royalists within its walls had tied up his force for more than eight weeks, and when they finally surrendered on the 11th of July, it was just in time. Because the anticipated Scottish invasion had begun just three days before. Let's back up a week, to the 4th of July. When the Engager army mustered on this day, no one was in the mood to let off fireworks and celebrate. The Scottish Parliament had authorised the recruitment of almost 30,000 men to invade England and enforce the engagement. The army Hamilton now saw assemble, the army he would lead against the New Model Army, the most effective fighting force Britain had seen since the original Army of the Covenant, was a bit of a letdown. Instead of 30,000 men, Hamilton only had around 9,000. These were mostly untrained new recruits, they were low on guns and ammunition, they had barely any artillery to call on, and the expected reinforcements from the Scottish forces in Ireland had not yet arrived. But as much as Hamilton might have wanted to, he couldn't wait any longer. It had taken two months to get the Engager army to this point, and any further delay would mean the remaining English rebels in Pembroke and Colchester, who the Engagers were meant to be coordinating with and supporting, would be crushed. He had to act now. So, on the 8th of July, Hamilton led the Engager army across the border. For the third time in the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, a Scottish army invaded England, but for the first time, it was in support of Charles I. Back down south, a new front opened for the Royalists. The Duke of Buckingham returned from exile and joined with the Earl of Holland. Holland, Henry Rich, had once fought on Parliament's side in the First Civil War, before defecting to the Royalists, and then defecting back to Parliament. He was saved from punishment for his treachery by Denzel Halls, who protected him from an attempted impeachment, and he sat in the Lords until the summer of 1648. As events carried on, independence began to dominate, and the social fabric appeared to be tearing, he once again considered turning his cloak. Buckingham, George Villiers, was the eldest son of the first Duke of Buckingham, also called George Villiers, who had been the favourite of Charles and his father James. Now that's a blast from the past. The first Duke had been murdered in the 1620s, to the delight of many and to the horror of Charles. Unsurprisingly, considering the King's love for his father, both the new second Duke of Buckingham and his brother Francis were raised alongside the royal children. Buckingham had fought in the First Civil War, on the King's side of course, before he and his brother Francis quit the kingdoms and travelled to Italy. When the Second Civil War kicked off, Buckingham and Francis returned, meeting up with Holland at Kingston, just outside of London, where they declared their allegiance to the King. Their plan was to raise a force of cavalry and seize London. It did not go well. The call to arms only managed to summon around 600 horsemen. And of course, the New Model Army reacted very quickly to this sudden uprising on the doorstep of the capital. On the 7th of July, an army colonel engaged their small force and destroyed it without any difficulty. 
Holland was captured and taken to the city he'd just tried to conquer to be tried for treason. Buckingham escaped to the Netherlands, but his brother Francis was killed in the fighting. In less than a week, the grand plan of Holland and Buckingham had failed catastrophically. Speaking of the city, over July and August, London was a political tinderbox. The city apprentices, who had caused trouble earlier in the year, attacked and forced off the road a munitions convoy, which was destined for Fairfax's army outside the walls of Colchester. From then on, convoys bound for Fairfax's forces went around the capital. Royalist prisoners were no longer considered secure in the capital, and moved elsewhere. A petition calling for the return of the King to London received widespread support, and on the 7th of August the London Common Council publicly backed the Engagers and the Prince of Wales. The Independents had control over the army, and the levers of political power in Parliament, but they had taken measures to try and bridge the gulf between them and the political Presbyterians. The independence in Parliament, as a sign of goodwill, had released many of those Presbyterian officers and politicians who had been arrested the previous summer. Presbyterians were appointed as sheriffs and as the new lieutenant of the Tower of London. The eleven members who had been impeached by the army the previous year were allowed to return. Well, ten of them were, because the eleventh had already died. Denzel Halls, William the Conqueror Waller, and Edward Massey returned to London and to their seats in the Commons. It appears that much of this push for reconciliation came from the politicians, not the army. Unfortunately for the politicians, these efforts did not bring everyone together. For example, both Waller and Massey almost immediately started recruiting for the Royalists within London. The loyalty of the capital to Parliament was never fully secure, and the only reason that London didn't flip Royalist in the summer of 1648 was the competent rule of Skippen. He kept his militia loyal, and he kept any Royalists in London isolated from the Royalists in Kent and Essex. Back north, Hamilton was finally in England, and he soon received word that Musgrave and Langdale were rushing to join forces with him. When they did, and the reinforcements from Ireland arrived, Hamilton commanded, on paper at least, 17,000 men. And that was basically the only good news Hamilton could cling to. The army that crossed the border in July 1648 was nothing like the one which had entered England four years earlier. For starters, its unity of command was... disunified. Hamilton was its commander, but he was overly cautious and indecisive, and, some would call it, timid. His second-in-command, the Earl of Callender, firmly believed that he should actually be running things, and he was not shy of saying so to anyone in earshot, including Hamilton. He constantly second-guessed, questioned, and criticised Hamilton's orders to any officers nearby. Those officers didn't think much of their commanders either. When George Monroe, the commander of the detachment sent from Ulster by Robert Monroe, arrived, he straight-up refused to serve under any of Hamilton's subordinates. He insisted that he report directly to Hamilton himself, effectively acting as a lieutenant general, possibly to try and maintain the peace and avoid insulting the honour of men like Callender. Hamilton sidestepped the demand and instead ordered Monroe to guard the rear and the artillery. This kept the peace, but it squandered a valuable and veteran force of soldiers, some of the best soldiers that Hamilton would have to call on. With the commanders at the top undermining each other in full display of the rest of the army, 
it was never going to be an easy campaign. And that's before you consider that army. It was mostly made up of new recruits who had barely been trained and hadn't seen any combat. They were short on ammunition, they were short on money, and their discipline was non-existent. So it's not surprising that when they crossed the border, the army immediately began to raid and pillage the English towns and villages they passed through. Now, of course, the army had to feed itself, but this did nothing to drum up support for the king or for the invasion to restore him. Again, it's a very stark contrast to Levin's campaign four years previously. Although, to be fair, northern resentment of Scottish armies would have been strong even if the engagers had been on their best behaviour. The northerners had only just got rid of their military occupation after three years. They were hardly going to welcome them back with open arms just a year after they left. But it's an interesting contrast to just a few years before. Early in the First Civil War, the North was a bastion of royalism. But to quote gentles, Charles threw this advantage away by enlisting Scots to fight his English subjects. End quote. And to top it all off, the weather was just terrible. It was the wettest summer in living memory. This didn't just make marching miserable, but also far more difficult. Roads became mud. Streams became rivers, and gunpowder stores, as well as the matches to light them, were drenched. All this combined, terrible weather, an unwelcoming population, no pay, few supplies, the lingering doubts instilled by furious Kirk ministers that they were in fact betraying God and the Covenant, it's safe to say that morale was in the basement. Now let's talk about the route they took. When I covered the seizure of Carlisle and Berwick, I mentioned that this gave Hamilton options. The first and most likely route for him to take south was the Eastern Road, through Berwick and down the East Coast. This was the normal route for armies to take. It was faster, with easier terrain, better suited for the cavalry, which was the main strength of the Engager army. It was also the best route to take if you wanted to, say, relieve the siege of Colchester, or indeed threaten London, which you would think would be top of Hamilton's priorities. This is not the route that Hamilton took, however. He appears to have intended to capture Manchester. Manchester, which had never fallen to a royal army throughout the First Civil War, despite being sieged repeatedly and for extended periods of time. It was no less defended now. To reach Manchester, Hamilton led his army south along the western route, crossing the border near Carlisle. If you've never been to the northwest of England, it's a beautiful place. It's basically made up of four large areas of outstanding natural beauty. Think British national parks. I bring this up because that beauty comes from the hills, valleys, lakes and forests which cover the landscape. Great for a visit. Bad for an army. Hamilton will find his force slowed down and split up by the terrain throughout this campaign. Also, it made effective scouting for, say, the size, disposition, or movements of enemy armies very difficult. But I'm sure none of that will matter. Hamilton knew that time was of the essence. He soon learned that Pembroke had fallen, and that Cromwell must now be on the way north. Major General John Lambert, who had been making the Northern Royalists pay for every day the engagers delayed, was waiting at Warwick Bridge, near Carlisle, with around 4,000 men. Lambert still understood that his objective was to delay, 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 and after holding the Engager army for a time, his forces made an orderly withdrawal south to Appleby, about 30 miles or around 50 kilometres south of Carlisle, 
It took Hamilton two more days to organise his army and resume the march, but by the 17th of July, he once again met Lambert in battle at Appleby. Lambert's men were defending a bridge, dug in and prepared, and the engagers had to, once again, wait for their infantry to form up in order to advance. By the time they were ready, it was almost sunset, and it was pouring down with rain. No surprise, Lambert's men held the position against the soggy and ill-motivated attack, and overnight, Lambert once again withdrew. He left a small force to hold Appleby Castle, but took the rest of his force to Barnard Castle, now famed for its innovative eye tests. Hamilton was then forced to spend two weeks near Appleby in order to resupply and await more reinforcements from Scotland. As lightning advances go, this was pretty shoddy. In stark contrast, by the 1st of August, Cromwell had reached Leicester, by the 5th, he was at Nottingham, and by the 8th, he was at Doncaster. Not counting the distance from Pembroke to Leicester, just Leicester to Doncaster, Cromwell covered around 86 miles, or 138 kilometres, in just a week. Now, though, he was forced to wait for four days for more artillery to arrive from Hull, and he spent his time relaxing. Oh no, wait, this is Oliver Cromwell. He didn't do relaxing. He popped up the road to Pontefract, held by the Royalists, to, as Lipscomb puts it, antagonise them. This was also the first recorded instance where Cromwell was referred to as Ironsides, a nickname which will stick. On the 13th, Cromwell marched north and united with Lambert at Weatherby. A few days before, on the 9th, Hamilton had started moving once again. His plan was to link up with Lord Byron, we haven't seen him since Marston Moor, who was trying to raise a royalist force from Cheshire and North Wales. Langdale was ordered southeast with 3,000 infantry and 600 cavalry to try and turn the governor of Skipton Castle to the king. He was on the way when his scouts reported, on the 13th, that a large enemy force was nearby, the combined army of Cromwell and Lambert. So Langdale sent word back to Hamilton to warn him. Suitably warned, Hamilton pressed on. His logic was that his intended destination, Preston, was more suitable ground for his infantry to fight on. That decision had deadly consequences. Lipscomb notes that many historians have concluded that Hamilton and the Scots can't have known where Cromwell was at this point, but that this wasn't the case. He did know, but he still acted like he didn't. His cavalry vanguard under General Middleton reached Preston on the 16th of August, and then continued south. They needed supplies. They crossed the river Ribble and carried on south. For his part, Cromwell and Lambert had crossed the Pennines, a ridge of mountains and hills which ran north-south through the north of England, and held a council of war on the evening of the 16th. Here, Cromwell decided to make a bold move. He would force a confrontation with Hamilton by blocking his retreat north. They crossed the Ribble where they spent the night, the following day, the War of the Engagement and the Second English Civil War would effectively be decided. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. 
I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We need to know where everyone was on the dawn of the 17th of August, 1648. So, first of all, Hamilton's army was split up. His cavalry, under General Middleton, was still south of Preston, on the other side of the River Ribble, closer to Wigan. His infantry, under General Bailey, was preparing to cross the river and join them. Langdale was en route from the north, heading towards Preston to rejoin the army, and Monroe's force was more than a day's march away, back north, keeping a healthy distance from the squabbling noble commanders. Cromwell and the parliamentarian forces were roughly united and had a good idea of where the enemy was. Hamilton believed that Cromwell had split his force in two, sending a portion of his force to defend Manchester. This belief would affect his decision-making. As it happens, from his position to the north, Monroe had been warned by Musgrave that Cromwell's whole army was bearing down on Hamilton, and he sent messengers with warnings to his commander. The vanguard of the parliamentary force caught up with Langdale about two miles from Preston. Leaving his troops to hold the line, Langdale rushed to meet with Hamilton and advise him that he had engaged the enemy. Hamilton still believed that Cromwell had split his force, despite, it has to be said, the up-to-date reports from Monroe indicating that he hadn't done that. Hamilton told Langdale to just keep fighting what was surely just a small outrider force. Callender mocked Langdale for being so worried about a mere probing attack. The two Scottish nobles were still determined to continue south, and so their army continued crossing the Ribble. Langdale dutifully returned to his army, and he later complained that we were skirmishing in all six hours, in all which time the Scots sent me no relief. After those six hours, the rest of Cromwell's force arrived, and the weight of numbers began to tell. Langdale's men, exhausted and low on supplies after their extended battle, began to be pushed back towards Preston. Hamilton was now faced with reality, and slowly realised the danger he'd put his army in. 
He sent some of his rearguard cavalry to assist Langdale, but they were almost immediately charged by the new model cavalry and forced to flee. Cromwell's advance through the hedgerows which surrounded Preston was relentless, and soon Hamilton's main force, spread over 40 miles, was engaged at multiple points. It was in a terrible position as well, with more than half of it on the south side of the Ribble, unable to help the rest caught on the north bank near Preston. Hamilton made a decision. He sent word to General Middleton to get back north with the cavalry, and ordered his infantry to stop crossing the Ribble, for those who had already crossed to come back, and for all to form up on Preston Moor. They would stand and they would fight here. They would let Cromwell's fanatics and revolutionaries wash against the rocks of their discipline. They would be a wall, a castle, a mountain of defiance. It was a long shot, but they just might pull it off. And then Callender rode back across the bridge and demanded to know what the hell Hamilton was doing. And Hamilton's resolve to fight, so bright and yet so brief, disappeared in the face of his second-in-command's contempt. Callender told his commanding officer that his plan to fight on Preston Moor was stupid, essentially. His cavalry would never get back in time, and without cavalry support, the engager infantry would be overwhelmed by Cromwell's own horsemen. The better defensive position was on the other side of the Ribble, where the bridge could create a choke point while they awaited the return of Middleton and the cavalry. Now, this wasn't terrible logic from Callender. The other side of the Ribble would be more defensive, and it would buy more time for the engager cavalry to return. Stuart Reed commends Callender's logic, but the plan had three major flaws. Firstly, it would mean abandoning Langdale's army on the north side of the river. There was no way they could break through the resistance of the new model army and reach the crossing. Secondly, it required Hamilton's ill-disciplined infantry to maintain discipline and execute a difficult manoeuvre under enemy pressure. And thirdly, it meant countermanding orders that had only just been made, adding to the confusion among the engager ranks. But Callender insisted, and Hamilton caved. The order was given, return to crossing the Ribble. And then the new model advance crashed home, splitting the engager force in two. Most of the army held the bridge in the south banks of the river, but the rest were pushed back to Preston itself. Langdale's position completely collapsed, with many of his infantry killed or captured, and his cavalry fled north to link up with Monroe. Hamilton was on the Preston side of the river. Langdale arrived at his position, and the two commanders fled west, through Preston, and forded the river Ribble at a more northerly point. They looped back around to rejoin the bulk of the army on the south bank, and could only watch as those cut off were killed or captured. The engagers held the bridge across the river in a fierce push of pike, until Lambert ordered a force of infantry to bypass their position through an obscure path through the nearby woods, called Watery Lane. Emerging behind and to the side of the engager position, the defensive position collapsed, and they fled back down the bridge. The infantry then fought a duel across the river, since neither side had any artillery, the better rate of fire and experience of the new model soldiers told. As light began to fade and the battle petered out, Cromwell's forces had secured a foothold on the south bank. The vast majority of the engager infantry had played no part in the Battle of Preston. In fact, it was Langdale's force which had done most of the fighting at Preston. Because of the indecision and squabbling among the commanders, they just had to stand and watch as their comrades fought and died. Morale, already in the basement, was starting to scratch at the foundations. In all, 
the engagers and royalists lost around 5,000 men at the Battle of Preston, with Cromwell estimating that his forces had killed about a 1,000 outright and another 4,000 taken prisoner. In his Atlas of the Battle, Lipscomb states that Hamilton had the advantage of more than two to one, almost 24,000 men versus Cromwell's 11,000. But bad intelligence, worse use of that intelligence, indecision from Hamilton, insubordination from Calendar, and the better training and experience of the new model army beat those odds. But the silver lining was that Hamilton's army was mostly intact, which happens when most of your army doesn't fight a battle. That evening, Hamilton convened a council of war, and once again it appears that Calendar dominated his superior officer. Calendar advocated a night withdrawal to meet up with Middleton's cavalry. Now this plan was disputed by Hamilton's other officers, especially Bailey, who pointed out that night manoeuvres are very tricky, and the engager army was in no state to do one. They were exhausted from marching, and for some of them from battle, they were hungry and cold, they were low on supplies. They would be marching through unfamiliar territory, through mud and in the pitch black. To make matters worse, Calendar urged the engagers to abandon their baggage, including their ammunition, in order to make better speed. Middleton would struggle to find them in the dark, whereas he knew their current position, and it was a defensive one. In spite of all these points, Hamilton bowed to the pressure of Calendar, and the engager army withdrew under the cover of darkness. They left behind their ammunition, which, despite an order being made to detonate it to avoid giving supplies to Cromwell, it wasn't, and Cromwell gratefully accepted the free gunpowder. All the problems highlighted by the sceptics proved correct. The night march south was miserable, slow, and confusing, and Cromwell was right behind them with around 5,500 men, having split his force. Middleton was racing north, and they would have met, but they took different roads. In the dark, in unfamiliar territory, Hamilton's infantry and Middleton's cavalry crossed like ships in the night. Middleton only realised what had happened when his cavalry crashed smack bang into Cromwell's vanguard, and he noticed a lack of Scottish accents, and he wheeled around. Middleton was a decent commander, though, and he made the most of the situation, acting as a rearguard for Hamilton's main force and fighting several skirmishes throughout the day of the 18th. By nightfall of the 18th, Hamilton had reached Wigan with most of the army. After a probably terrible but well-deserved night's sleep, the Scottish army set off once again. They reached the outskirts of Warrington, near Winwick, and here they made their stand. Using the hedgerows and lanes of Red Bank, they established a strong defensive position, blocking the lanes with walls of pikes and lining their muskets along the hedges and banks. It made quick work of the pursuing parliamentary vanguard, and it took a few hours for Cromwell's main force to arrive. When it did, though, they found the Scots dug in and hard to shift, despite the advantages in discipline which Cromwell enjoyed. But here, the engagers' unfamiliarity with the terrain and the opposition of the local people was their undoing. Guided by Winwick locals, who didn't much care for the invading army that had just turned up, a portion of Cromwell's infantry were led around the right flank of the engager position to emerge behind their defences. That was it for the existing plan. There was no holding Red Bank now, and Hamilton ordered a withdrawal. But as they fell back to Winwick, Cromwell's forces caught up with the retreating Scots, and the withdrawal became a rout. About 2,000 engagers and royalists were killed, and another 4,000 were captured. 
Somehow, Bailey managed to withdraw the remains of his infantry towards Warrington, and it was here that he found Hamilton and Callender had already fled, with a force of around 3,000 cavalry heading towards Chester. All that remained was a note telling Bailey to surrender on the best terms he could. Bailey was, understandably, furious at the incompetence and apparent cowardice of the aristocrats who had led him and his men into this disaster. He angrily demanded that someone, anyone, shoot him to avoid the dishonour they had dropped in his lap, and he only calmed down when his surviving officers offered to sign a testament that none of this was his fault. When he did calm down, he drew up his remaining men behind barricades and offered to surrender on the promise of quarter, which was granted. Cromwell was now having to deal with close to 10,000 prisoners. He split his force, sending Lambert after Hamilton and leading the rest of his army north to contend with Monroe and stand at the border. He had a feeling his army would be needed in Scotland. Lambert needn't have bothered. When Hamilton's exhausted cavalry arrived in Cheshire, the county militia was waiting for them. They trapped the engagers as they attempted to cross a river and captured most of the force. Hamilton escaped, again, but on the 22nd of August he surrendered to the governor of Stratford. Callender managed to find a ship and eventually safe exile in the Netherlands. The game was up. Berwick and Carlisle were still held by royalists and engagers, so Cromwell marched to the Anglo-Scottish border and waited for the news of Hamilton's defeat and the defeat of the engagement to have its expected effect. That will be for next time. The defeat of Hamilton and his engagers was the death knell for the royalist cause in the Second English Civil War. As we will see next episode, all that Parliament needed to do now was clean up. Thank you to my House of Lords, including the King's favourite Mike Sanders, Damien, Duke of Portland, Christian Sebast, Marquess of Winchester, and Russell Steinthal, Earl of Dudley. You can join their ranks and receive ad-free episodes by going to patreon.com slash paxbritannica. Remember that you can join the mailing list to be notified about new episodes and news about the show by going to the link in the description. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.